Good day again, everyone. Please turn back to the uh, first reading, back to the start of your Bible, back to Genesis 3. I've purposely been having readings from Genesis and Revelation, so you get both ends of the Bible, uh, and that Revelation reading is relevant to later on. But uh, turn back to Genesis 3. I just want to say again, uh, it's really important we remember that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all go together, that you don't just listen to one out of the other. So if you've missed any of the earlier talks, go back and get the podcast to listen to Genesis 1 and 2 as well. But now I'll pray as we come to this very, very important chapter. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this chapter that explains our world and uh, the predicament of our world, perhaps better than any other place. And so, Father, we pray that we will listen to it as you speak to us through it. You'll help me preach it clearly, uh, but you'll also help us to recognise ourselves in it, recognise the reality of our sin, and also see uh, what is the one true answer to that sin, which is our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I talked last week about how important these opening chapters of Genesis are for us to understand who we are as human beings. I talked about how this is our our family history, uh, our origin story. And if Genesis 2 was like, you know, going back and seeing where grandma lived, you know, that sort of thing, or going back and seeing where your great-grandfather came from, Uh, if it was the positive start of our history, Genesis 3 is that point when you discover the dark family secret. Uh, So if you've ever watched those shows on TV, you know, the Where Do I Come From shows where they they get a celebrity and they go back through all the records and find their their family history, they always seem to discover that great-great-grandpa wasn't quite the hero they thought he was. You know, he was a slave trader or, or he had another family in the next village in England or, or something dark. And of course, that's what makes those shows interesting. If they didn't find anything, they'd be a very boring hour of television. Uh, Genesis 3, though, is no secret scandal. The, the consequences of Genesis 3 have impacted every human being throughout all of history. This is the start of human sin. This is the start of the problem that the rest of the Bible is dealing with. From this point on... Every human being who has ever lived is a sinner. And it's because of Genesis 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We looked only a few couple of months ago at church, but it should come up on the screen. Romans 5, verse 12. It's coming. There it is. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. The point it's making is this is where it all started. The, the die was cast with Adam. So in one sense, we can all blame Adam. In one sense, we can all say it's Adam's fault. Uh, From Genesis 3 on, we're all sinners. But of course, we all know we can't blame Adam, as it said there, because all sinned. We've all sinned too. From the moment we can think, from the moment we can talk, from the moment we can do anything, we walk in Adam and Eve's footsteps. That's what it is to be a human being. And I think that's sort of the perverse beauty of reading Genesis 3. I keep talking every week about how these chapters are history, but they're also richly symbolic. Uh, And so, yes, this is the story of Adam and Eve. In the one sense, it's a history lesson. This is where sin came from. And it's sort of out there. It's their problem. But as you read it, and it's beautifully written to make you do this, you actually can't help but see yourself in the story. As Eve does what she does, as Adam does what he does, you can't help but see yourself. And that's the beauty of this chapter. What it does is it describes Adam's sin, the problem, where it all started, but it's also sort of like an illustration of every one of us and the sin we commit 
every day, every week, every month, every year. So unless you are willfully blind, so unless you, you are consciously decide not to, I don't think you can help but see yourself in this story as well. So let's get into it. Come with me. Uh, you do want to be following along because there's, there's some really close detail I want to show you. Uh, so the first part I've called the essence of sin. It's going to be where I focus and it's verses one to seven. So we finished chapter two. Do you remember last week? We finished chapter two at that incredible high point. Chapter two, verse 25, man and woman living in paradise, living in perfect harmony with one another, in perfect harmony with God, uh, free to eat, if you remember, total freedom, free to eat from every tree in the garden with only one limit, one tree where God said, that's not for you. So here are Adam and Eve, they're starting the job God's given them of working God's creation, but not in the sense we know work, no frustration, no toil, just enjoying ruling over God's good creation. And then you get to chapter three, verse one. And you're meant to feel the change of gears. You're meant to feel the temperature drop as you come to, from chapter two, verse 25 to chapter three, verse one. So look at it with me. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? As I say, that verse is meant to jar on you after getting to the end of chapter two. You're meant to feel the change. Now at this point, who is the snake? Was it an actual talking snake? I want to say, don't discount that. The, the, the devil could do that if he wanted, just like God spoke through a donkey to Balaam on the, on the road into Israel, you, you know, at a later point. Uh, it, that is possible. The devil can use creation for his schemes. Or is the snake a metaphor for the devil? Now, in the end, it doesn't matter because what's clear is it was the devil's voice. It was the devil who was behind those words. That's why we had that reading from Revelation chapter 20 because Revelation 20 verse 2 says, the ancient serpent is the devil. So where does the devil come from? People love asking that question. They say, where, you know, God made this world and it was amazing and beautiful. He made humanity to be in his image. Uh, where does the devil come from? People have to pose theories on that. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail it suggests he's a fallen angel. He is the, the, from the heavenly hosts who sinned, if you like, turned his back on God. Uh, the Bible says he is the tempter, he is the accuser, he is the father of lies. And so he sets about, here's God making this perfect creation with human beings in his image. So what does the devil want to do? He wants to ruin it. And he sets about lying and tempting Adam and Eve. So where does the devil attack? How's the devil go about doing that? Where is the battleground? It's where it will be for the rest of history. He attacks the word of God. So look at verse one again. It says, he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Now I want you to notice a few things about how the devil works. First of all, do you see how he throws doubt on the goodness of God and the goodness of God's word? Because you want people to think God isn't good, you attack his word. It's the same if you want to think a person's not good. You see, you can't say Phil's a liar, but he's a good guy. You can't throw doubt on my words and then say, but I'm good. No, no, no. So if, if God's word is not good, God is not good. And so what he does to throw doubt, he says, did God really say? I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just, I'm just asking the question. I'm just posing the question. He's just putting that idea out there that maybe God's word is up for debate. God's word is up for discussion. I hope you see that because that is how false teachers work in the church. 
It's how false teaching creeps into the church. They rarely come and say God's word is wrong. What they say is, does God's word really say what it, what it seems to say? Does God's word really say what it, what it seems to say when you, you read it? That's why I'm always very, very sceptical when someone comes up with a new reading of the Bible that just happens to fit with what our culture says today. That should make you suspicious because that, that's how the devil works. Does God's word really say what we've thought it said for hundreds of years? Maybe it says something different that'll make it easier for us in this modern world. Did God really say? More than that, I want you to notice, do you remember how last week I talked about how the name of God changed from chapter one to chapter two? Do you remember that? How in chapter two, it switches to using the personal name of God. So in chapter two was Lord, L-O-R-D, capitals, which means Yahweh, God. So that's in our translations. Do you notice how when the devil tries to tempt Adam and Eve, he goes back to using the impersonal word God? Do you notice how he goes back to sort of say, because it's much easier to question God when God is some impersonal deity who lives up in the sky than when he is your heavenly father or when he is the Lord Jesus or when he is Yahweh who loves you. See, it's interesting how Eve, as she contemplates the sin, scan down a little bit further, her language changes too. She starts treating God as if he's distant and out there. And I think this is true for us all. All too often, when we start to think about sin, we do things to keep God at a distance. We, we, we withdraw ourselves from Christian fellowship because people might challenge us. We stop reading God's word. We stop praying and we stop talking about God as our loving heavenly father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we start to talk about him as God out there. Those things are the subtleties. In the end, the devil just lies. And so what he does is he distorts God's word to make it seem like God is harsh and unfair. Look with me. See how the devil says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That is not what God said. So back in chapter two, God actually said you could eat from any tree in the garden, every tree in the garden, except this one tree for your own good. So at this point, Eve, what should she have done? What should Eve have done at this point? She should have just said, don't be stupid. I'll come to Adam in a minute. But for now, Eve should have just said, don't be stupid. God is good. That's not what God said. Get lost, stupid snake. And why are you talking anyway? You're not meant to talk. You know, that, that is what Eve should have said, shouldn't she? She should have actually just said, you, don't be stupid. What a silly thing to say. Instead, she opens up the conversation. And that is how temptation works. Instead of running away, we start to nibble at it. Instead of running away, we start to say, oh, hang on, is there something in that? The ball is rolling. Eve is open to the idea. Maybe I do have the right to debate God's word. Look at verse two. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Now, at first glance, that sounds good. At first glance, it sounds like she's standing up for God. Actually, she started to play the devil's game. Because just compare that to what God actually said back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And when you actually put them side by side, she subtly changes it. Firstly, she just quietly tones down how generous God is. God actually said, you can eat from any or every tree in the garden. Eve just leaves that word out. 
She just leaves out the word that stresses God's abundant generosity. And then she just adds in a little bit more than what God actually prohibits. See, God really just said, don't eat from that one tree. What does Eve do? She adds to it. God said, don't even touch it. She just makes it sound a bit harsher. It's a bit like when the parent disciplines their teenager. It's a good week for fit camp. They're not here. And, and, and says, if you don't do your chores, you can't go to the party on Sunday night. But then when the teenager is talking to their friends, they say, did you hear my, my dad says, unless I do everything that he says, I can never go out again. We do it at work, don't we? We do it. You know, the boss calls us in and says, I'm not happy with something you're doing. We go out and we tell our workmates. We say, oh, he said he was going to sack me if I... We stress how harsh the prohibition is when we're going to break it. That's Eve. She starts to diminish God's generosity on the one hand and increase his harshness. And so the serpent spots the opportunity. But now he stops being tricky and he just straight out denies God's word. Look from verse 4. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is not telling you the truth. God is a liar. You will not die if you do this. It's interesting. That is still the lie of the devil. And it's always the first doctrine under attack when people want to deny the gospel. Sin isn't as serious as God says it is. Sin isn't as bad as God says it is. Hell is not real. God won't judge you. People have been saying the same lie as Satan for thousands of years. Worse than that, the devil actually says God is not good. He says God actually has a hidden agenda. God doesn't want what's good for you. God doesn't want you to do this because he doesn't want you to be like him. God is withholding things from you. And at that point, the devil is articulating the essence of sin. Surely you want to be like God. You don't want God to decide good for you. You don't want God to decide right and wrong for you. You want to do it for yourself. That is sin. Thinking we can be the king, thinking we can take God's place as the decider of what is right and wrong. And isn't that still the devil's lie to us? It's still the devil's lie that God is a killjoy. The reality is God's ways are what is best for you. When God's word prohibits something, it's not because God is a great killjoy who doesn't want you to know something or, or, or feel something. When God's word encourages something, it's because it's what is good for you. The devil wants us to doubt that. God just doesn't want you to have fun. God wants you to miss out. That's what the devil still whispers today. Back to the story. At this point, sin is not inevitable. At this point, Adam and Eve still have a choice. Do we listen to the devil's lies or do we trust God and his goodness? And I think it's really, really significant that at this point, the serpent disappears out of the story. Because you see, the devil might be the tempter, but he can't make you sin. Do you remember all those years ago? In fact, some of you won't remember this because you have no interest in cricket. But all those years ago, the South African cricket captain got caught cheating and, and being corrupt, Hansi Cronia. And he claimed to be a Christian. And we pray he is a Christian and we pray that he knew the Lord Jesus because he's now dead. But at the time, he said, when they asked what he did, he said, the devil may be doing it. That is not true. The devil can't make you do it. He can't make us sin. Adam and Eve decide to sin. Don't blame the devil for our own sin and our own bad decisions. 
So we come to verse 6. Come with me. It says, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. It's actually beautifully written at this point. You see, what it's capturing, it actually draws you into the story. Look at it, verse 6 there. You see, what it's capturing is how once God fades into the back of your mind, and once God's word fades into the back of your mind, sin looks really desirable. That's why I use all those words, desirable, alluring. Sin is so alluring, sin is so attractive, and so she eats. Now, some people at this point say, oh, typical sexist, patriarchal Bible, it's all the woman's fault. Look closely, though, at verse 6. Look closely. Adam was with her. I think that means he was with her from the beginning. Adam had been there the whole time. Adam had stayed silent while the serpent spoke. And he had stayed silent while Eve responded. And he had done nothing to stop her doing what God had forbidden. He hadn't slapped it out of her hand and said, don't do that. And remember, he was the one who God had given the instructions to. Eve hadn't even been made when God said, don't eat from that tree. Adam was the one who had heard the word of God firsthand. And he was the one who'd been there with God from the beginning. And what does he do? Nothing. Worse than that, I think. He lets her take the first bite and only then when he sees no downside, nothing's happened yet, does he take a bite. So the New Testament says Adam, it says Eve was deceived, not Adam. And that's true, but that actually makes Adam's sin worse. He wasn't deceived, he knew what he was doing and he did it anyway, which is why the New Testament calls it the sin of Adam. See, many people have rightly pointed out what you see in Genesis 2 is actually a total flipping of how God designed the world to work. Adam was made to listen to God and to take responsibility for Eve, his helper, his complement. Then together, they were meant to rule over the creation. What happens here? Adam abdicates his responsibility. Together, what do they then do? They listen to a creature who they're meant to rule and no one listens to God. This is the essence of sin. Well, I spent quite a lot of time on that first part of the story. I'm going to deal more briefly now with what I've called the consequences of sin in verses 7 to 24. And there's four I want to pull out. First is death and judgment. The, the serpent told them, you will not die. He lied. At this moment, death entered the world. By his grace, God didn't smite them then and there. He, he let them live for many years yet, but from this point, death was now their inevitable destiny. That's the point of verse 24 there at the end of the chapter. That's why they're cut off from the tree of life. They could have lived forever in God's beautiful garden. They could have eaten from the tree of life and lived forever. Now that's cut off. Death is now the certain end for them and for every human being who ever lives. In fact, the Bible says, apart from if we trust in Jesus... We are all dead in our sins. We look alive, but we're actually dead. Best illustration I've heard for this is we're like a bunch of flowers. That's what it is to be human apart from Jesus. 
We are like a bunch of flowers. The bunch of flowers, as you put it there in the vase, looks alive. It looks beautiful. It's full of colour. But it's actually dead. The moment they went along with the secateurs and cut it off and removed it from its roots, it was dead. Still looks alive, but its future is inevitable within a, a, if I buy them, usually a day, but uh, you know, possibly you might get a week or a month out of them. What do they look like? Brown and withered. That's humanity. Sorry for the graphic image. That's us. From the moment you are born, you are dying. You are dead in your sins and our inevitable end is we go brown and wither, just like the flowers in the vase. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The next consequence, I'm going to get to the optimistic part at the end. The next consequence, shame and broken relationships. Look at verse 7. It's actually meant to be the opposite of what we read in chapter 2, verse 25 last week. There used to be total openness. There used to be no shame between the man and the woman. Now they need to cover themselves. Why do they need to cover themselves? Because now they know what they're thinking. Now they know the reality of the sin going on in their mind as they think about the other and they think they're probably having similar thoughts. So they don't trust each other. They need to protect themselves from one another. Human relationships are now broken. She worries, will he take advantage of me? He worries, will she mock me? You see in verse 16, look there, it's actually an allusion to how the marriage relationship is now going to be distorted. It's now going to be broken. Instead of taking responsibility for their wives and loving them and serving them as God intended Adam to do, men will be tempted to do one of two things. On the one hand, they'll be tempted to abuse their greater strength and misuse their power. Or the other extreme, and Adam is the example par excellence of it, Husbands will fail to take responsibility and be passive and not step up and take responsibility. And Adam is the prime example of that. It's actually, we, we laugh at it all the time on our televisions. We laugh at the sin of Adam. When we watch The Simpsons, Homer Simpson is Adam. The, the hopeless dad and husband who fails to take responsibility. I, I've forgotten what it's called. Everyone loves Raymond. Remember that one? Where we laugh at Ray as his hopelessness and... He is just the sin of Adam, passivity and failing to take responsibility. And wives, sadly, often because of the passivity of their husbands, wives will be tempted to seek to subvert God's order. But the point is here, all human relationships are now broken and distorted because of sin. Even worse, though, there's a break in our relationship with God. Come with me to verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here is the wonderful God, the wonderful Yahweh, who they know personally, who loves them, who made them. Up until now, they had had a perfect relationship with him. Now they hear him coming, and what do they do? They run and hide. Of course, you can't run away from God. God seeks them out. God confronts them. God knows where they are and what they've done. When he asks the questions, it's for their benefit, not his. He knows exactly where they are. He's just getting them to see the reality. And if it wasn't so sad, this interaction would be really funny. Look from verse 9. It says, So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what does the man do? 
And this is sort of one of those saddest, funniest moments in the Bible because it is so true. Because even at this point, what should Adam have done? He should have said, yes, I did God and I'm sorry. He should have taken responsibility. Instead, what does he do with verse 12? Then the man replied, the woman did it. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. And that is just what we do. Blame her, not me. And then Eve joins in. She's no better. Don't blame me, blame the snake. Hang on, where's he gone? He's not here anymore. He was. We're all victims, aren't we? And as our modern world, I think, descends into sin, it's interesting that victimhood becomes the norm. We're, we're all victims. No one's responsible for what they do. It's the devil's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. No, you ate the fruit. You notice how Adam even tries to blame God? See it there? You were the one who made her. I was fine in chapter two. Then you came along and fixed my problem. And people do that today. If God didn't want me to do this, he wouldn't have let me be like this. If God didn't want me to do this, he wouldn't have tempted me in this way. Don't ever say that. James chapter 1, verse 13, it'll come up on the screen. says, no one undergoing a trial or a temptation should say, I am being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Don't ever say, I'm helpless. Don't ever blame God for your sin. But the point is, there is now a rift between God and humanity. And that brings us to the final consequence, which is God's judgment on this life. The greatest judgment, of course, is death. That's the great judgment. As we saw before, now we surely die. But more than that, God also makes this life, up until death, hard because of our sin. Humanity was meant to fill the earth and subdue it. From now on, that will be a constant struggle. Verse 16 says, now there will be anguish in childbirth for the woman. That is not the way it's meant to be. Verse 17 says, the earth is now cursed. Work is hard. Work is dissatisfying. When you come home from work and you think, what did I achieve today? Say, hang on, that's Genesis 3. See, work, is, it's not, there's not meant to be famines in the world. There's not meant to be floods. There's not meant to be droughts and weeds. They're here because of our sin. This life is hard now and it's all because of our sin. The consequences of sin, death, broken human relationships, a broken relationship with God and a broken world, a broken creation. Now my final point. Even here, at this lowest moment of the whole Bible, God's love and grace is at work. I've called it glimmers of grace. I was getting a bit poetic late in the week in writing my sermon. But it's like, it could be glimpses of grace. It's not explicit. This, this chapter is about sin. It's not meant to be positive. This chapter is about judgment. That's the main point. But even amongst all that, it's like God can't help but shine a little light to give you glimmers of grace. One example is verse 21. Look there. Right near the end, God doesn't have to do it. But he says, those fig leaves aren't working. And he gives them clothes for them to wear to cover their shame. And there's other little glimpses like that right through this chapter that just remind you God is ready to show grace and mercy to the people he made. And the greatest of those glimmers is there in verse 15. Look with me. This is part of God's curse on the serpent for what he did. And God says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, on the one hand, you can just take that as a general comment about how we're not going to like snakes very much. Because we know who the serpent actually is. And so this is actually the first prophecy in the Bible. 
This is the first promise in the Bible. God is promising there will be a seed. Notice how it's singular. There will be a descendant of Eve. And the devil will strike at that descendant of Eve, but he will be the one who crushes the devil once and for all. This is the first pointer in the whole Bible towards what God was going to do to deal with the problem of sin. He would send Jesus to reverse Genesis 3. Jesus would come and deal with the devil and sin and death once and for all through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the serpent crusher. I always love it when we sing that Colin Buchanan song where the kids get to, he's a sin smasher. And so it captures, we're often too passive. The Bible gives Jesus fighting words, you know. He is the serpent crusher. He defeats, that's why we read Revelation 20 before. As I close, how do we respond to Genesis 3? You might read Genesis 3 and think, well, I can do better than Adam and Eve. You might read Genesis 3 and think, I can kick this sin thing once and for all. You can't. We all have Adam and Eve's disease. We are all born sinners. That's why I read from Romans 5 before. See, our response to Genesis 3 should not be first and foremost, pull up your socks and do better than Eve or do better than Adam when you're presented with temptation. The response is actually, don't hide from God. You're in the same situation as them. You are Adam, you are Eve. Don't hide from God. Turn to him, take responsibility for your sin and seek his forgiveness. Because you see, we know that the serpent crusher has come. In his death, Jesus paid the price for our sin. In his resurrection, he has defeated death. And so what do we need to do? We need to stop hiding from our sin. We need to stop justifying our sin and blaming other people. We need to own our sin, confess it to God, and take a hold of the gift of salvation he's given us in Jesus. Look at how Romans 5 compares Adam and Jesus. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the Adam part. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift overflowed to the many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. We are all sinners because of Adam. But we can all be forgiven because of Jesus. But now, as forgiven sinners, Genesis 3 also shows us how sin works. It equips us to fight the fight. The New Testament tells us the devil still prowls around like a roaring lion, wanting to tempt you. It shows us how he works. He throws doubt on God's goodness. He shows, it shows us how he distorts God's word and makes us doubt that it says what it says. So as a forgiven sinner, how do we resist the devil? Listen to the word of God. And trust that God is good and so his word is right and it's what you need. And never forget that God and his word tell you right and wrong. Not what you feel in here, not what you think in here. It's what it says in here that decides right and wrong. We want to be like the person in Psalm 1. Just compare Adam and Eve to the person in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked? Or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. And he meditates on it day and night. So we want to be like Jesus. Remember when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the desert? How does the devil tempt Jesus? He quotes the word of God at him. How does Jesus respond to the devil? He quotes God's word back at him. He knows the word better than the devil. 
See, how do you resist the devil? By knowing God's word so well that he can't trick you. But more than that, by believing God's word is good and letting it decide you're right and you're wrong. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even though this passage is difficult and we see ourselves in it, we thank you for it because it shows us the reality of our situation without Jesus. Father, we are sorry that all too often the sin of Adam and Eve is, our, is us. All too often we hide from you. All too often we do not listen to your word. All too often we give excuses. But Father, we thank you that despite that, you sent Jesus to die for our sins and to rise again so that we might have life. And so we pray that we would recognise our sin and know that wonderful forgiveness that comes in Christ alone. But now as forgiven sinners, help us not to walk like Adam. Instead, help us to resist temptation, to listen to your word and to know it so well that it would guide how we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.